Hello and welcome to the Society for Acute Medicine podcast. Here we discuss topics, cases and anything new and upcoming in the world of acute medicine. This is our view and take. Remember to always do your own reading around the topics we discuss. Enjoy the show. Hello everybody and welcome to another podcast. Today I've got Peter with me. Hi Peter. Hi Vicky. And um, we've also got a special guest. Our special guest today is Jenny. Jenny Christie is a rheumatologist at the Liverpool University Foundation Trust. And um, we're going to dedicate this podcast to some really common things we see in the acute medical unit in terms of rheumatology. Welcome Jenny. Hi Vicky. So with no further ado, shall we kick off? Let's do it. So what we thought we'd do today was have a little chat about things that we see commonly and use a couple of cases to take us through them. So Jenny, I am going to use a really common thing that we see pretty much every day on the acute medical unit or in ambulatory care. And we've got a 50-year-old male and he comes to us with a hot joint. Really common thing that we see. In your experience, how well do we manage this, do you think, on the AMU or the acute unit? I think that can be hit and miss. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Vicky? Yeah, yeah, I think probably so. I think it's like anything, isn't it? I think so. I think sometimes that it's managed really well. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people just aren't sure of what to do. Yeah. So the most important thing when any hot joint comes into hospital is to aspirate it. Okay. Um, because no matter what anyone says, you can't tell the difference between a hot swollen knee that's caused from septic arthritis or that's caused by gout. I wish you could tell the difference without sticking a needle in, but unfortunately you can't. So there are other useful things to do, such as blood tests, urate, CRP, white cell count, um, x-ray. I've had patients previously who've had patella fractures referred as swollen joints (laughs) and aspirating it. And then not forgetting blood cultures as well, which is commonly forgotten. I think that's probably the most commonly forgotten thing. Okay. And and so, you know, if you've got a big juicy knee, I suspect that quite often gets a needle stuck into it quite commonly, quite quickly. Um, people tend to struggle with the other smaller joints, don't they? What, what can we do about that? So say it's, you know, you're a med reg and you're on call and it's two o'clock in the morning and by the time you get to the patient... You know, it's two o'clock in the morning and then they've got a swollen elbow or, you know, another one of the smaller joints. What, what advice can you give there? Well, yes, this is common. It's all easy, nine to five, Monday to Friday, isn't it? But these problems crop up at the weekend or bank holidays or mm. overnight. First of all, if it's a big toe that we're talking about, then classically that's usually gout yeah and you don't normally need to put a needle into it mm-hmm. unless you really think that this could be a septic arthritis yeah perhaps if they've had a trauma or there's an open wound there or they're spiking a, a significant temperature that might be the only reason that you might think of that if it was in another joint like an elbow or shoulder or wrist well you don't have to aspirate it there and then usually these things can wait until um, until the morning yeah, and you can just treat it with IV antibiotics if you think it might be septic until that point. Yeah, okay. Go on Peter. Can, can I ask, if you give IV antibiotics before um, aspirating it, I assume that's going to lower the chances of getting a positive aspirate, so would that be correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. 
but I think if you're only talking about one dose of antibiotics mm. before you aspirate it, and if that's done because you really think that this is a septic joint and it can't wait for the antibiotics because the patient's unwell, then I think that it's better to treat. Sure. You know, yeah. rather yeah. than wait. And I suppose you're taking the blood cultures as well. Um, exactly. So you might actually get something for back from that. Exactly. The blood culture is really important because even in confirmed septic arthritis, only about 80% of them will grow something in their synovial fluid. So that's the reason that we bang on about blood cultures mm. because okay. quite often we find a positive blood culture, but the synovial culture will be negative. And sometimes that might mm. happen because there's okay. been a delay in the aspirate. But that delay is sometimes because there's no one there who, who can mm, aspirate yeah. it. And there's no excuse for not everyone can get blood culture, can't they? Exactly. Yeah. Well, you would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say something now. So some of our listeners may be surprised to hear that occasionally on an acute medical unit, patients stay for longer than they should. You know, that's yeah. shocking, isn't it? <laughs> and occasionally there's situations where your heart sinks because you, you're doing a ward round maybe on Monday morning. And the patient's been there for well over 72 hours. They've got a big swollen joint and it's not been aspirated, but they've had three, four days of intravenous antibiotics. Help, because what, what can you do there? I mean, obviously, is there any point? Shall we still tap it and get some fluid off? So, yeah, I'm sure that happens frequently while you're waiting for orthopaedics or my own special specialty rheumatology uh, to come, depending on whatever your local pathway is. That's quite a tricky one. So if the joint is septic, then even with those four days of antibiotics, you'll probably still get a very high cell count on that. Mm -hmm. um, and you might still grow something. So if that's the delay between the patient coming in and the aspiration, it is still useful because you can still confirm it. However, if you've treated them perhaps as a crystal arthritis when they've come in as well as a septic joint, you might actually find that this patient's joint is significantly better after that period of time, in which case almost certainly it was a crystal arthritis to begin with. So it really depends on the clinical situation and what that joint looks like mm. at that point four days later. Yeah. If it's resolved, then there's no point putting a needle into that knee because that's going to be extremely painful yeah. and not and not give you any information yeah, sure. and almost certainly that was a crystal arthritis because mm. it was got better so quickly okay so i mean i guess there are times when it's just unfortunate because they might be on anticoagulation or there's there's lots of things where you, you can't actually get the aspirate as quickly or would you say don't worry too much about that yeah i was starting to shake my head as you were talking <laughs> about anticoagulation there um, this is often used as a reason not to aspirate, but it's not a reason. Okay. If you think a joint is a septic joint, it doesn't matter if they are on a warfarin or a DOAC. I've aspirated joints with unrecordable um, INRs previously when I've been absolutely convinced that they were septic yeah. and they've been proven mm, to be yeah. a septic joint because a septic joint is a medical emergency okay. in that if you leave that without treatment, you can destroy that person's joint and yeah. that's irreversible yeah. then. Okay. So even the dreaded clopidogrel, which seems to be everybody's favourite <laughs> excuse for everything. <laughs> clopidogrel, aspirin, DOAC. So you just go, go. Just if you think that's a septic joint, you you go for it. It doesn't matter. In an elective situation, so when we do injection clinics, we'll tell the patient to avoid 
their DOAC on the morning. Um, but when they're on warfarin, we obviously don't tell them to stop it because that will really mess that up. Okay. So even in an elective situation, we'll still inject someone's joint um, when their INR is in, within normal range. Okay. So certainly don't use a normal range INR or, yeah. the, um, or a DOAC as a reason not to aspirate a joint. That's really good learning. Yeah, yeah, okay. Can I ask a question going back to your example of a patient being left on the AMU for a few days before being aspirated? It's mostly uh, going back to that diagnostic dilemma. Say you aspirate someone's joint and if it's so high over 100,000, I believe, it's usually septic arthritis until proven otherwise. And if it's less than 50,000, it's usually some of the causes, some sort of reactive causes. Uh, what about that middle ground, 50 to 100,000? <laughs> but it's, that's where it always is. <laughs> exactly. I had a patient last week with 77,000, and I didn't know where to hang my hat. And that's a really good question because it's hard to know. That's the indeterminate region between 50 and 100,000. And I guess the way that we would manage that is with the clinical context that that patient is in. So, for example, if the uh, cell count comes back as 51,000, but there's urate crystals there and their urate's high and they've had gout many times before, you would say, this is not septic arthritis we can discharge them home with um, gout treatment and we'll just keep an eye out for that 48-hour um, culture. I'll tell them mm. to come back if they get worse. Say it's 99,000, but they're spiking a temperature and their white cells are really high. Even if there was urate crystals in there, you might still think, I'm worried that this is both a crystal arthritis and a septic arthritis and I'd like to keep them in right. because they seem unwell. And even when you've got this middle ground, you would take the rest of the clinical features into account. So have they had gout before? Do they have crystals in the sample? Mm. Is their urate really high? Um, are they generally unwell? Are they spiking temperatures? And make a decision as to whether you can send that patient home and ask them to come back if it worsens, or you call them back if it grows something, or you admit them and treat them with antibiotics until that 48-hour culture is back. And obviously, that's the safer option. Yeah. So if you're not confident in what to do, um, or if you're unsure, then that's always the safer option to do, and then to ask someone who knows. So that might be orthopedics, or that might be rheumatology, depending on what hospital you're in. Okay, okay. so it all boils down essentially to good old clinical assessment, mostly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like that. everything. Yeah, pretty much. And and the fact if there are crystals in there doesn't really change your decision-making process so that much. No, because you can have crystals as well as a septic arthritis. They frequently coincide. That's so, annoying, isn't it? <laughs> it is. But often when um, you've seen lots and lots of swollen joints, you often almost use the aspirate to confirm what you thought to yeah. begin with. So if I think it's gout to begin with, and that might be because they've had it many times before, they're your rate 600, it feels to the patient like gout, they're not generally unwell, and it's shown your rate crystals, then that just confirms what I think. And I'll, mm. even if their cell count's 80,000, I'll probably think, let's treat this as gout and let the patient go home and bring them back. Okay. If otherwise. Yeah. So one thing you mentioned at the beginning was that you would do 
blood cultures and an x-ray and we often get x-rays and like you said you were talking about patella fracture is is there anything else we might be looking for okay can you sometimes get abnormal x-rays in these situations um apart from fractures you might well you might see an effusion on the x-ray but you also might see signs of pseudo gout on that x-ray as well yeah um especially in wrists um, or knees so that's the other feature that you would find and that might help you make a judgment of the diagnosis for that patient based on everything put together because unfortunately again same as septic arthritis only is confirmed in about 80% of the synovial fluid crystal arthritis is even when you know it's a crystal arthritis you don't always see the crystals in the sample yeah. either again that's only around 80% of samples that you know of crystal arthritis and you've treated as crystal arthritis will actually show the crystals in the sample so other features such as pseudo gout on an x-ray are really helpful to confirm a diagnosis if okay. your synovial fluid doesn't give you a diagnosis okay you've mentioned urate so i get a little bit confused with this one because in an acute gout often urate is is normal so is it worth sending it when they come in and if so why how does it help it is still useful because although it becomes normal in up to, I think it's about 40% of people will have a low or normal urate. Around half won't, so around half will still have a raised urate. And it, if you see that, then that just adds to that clinical picture of everything else to help you make a diagnosis. Cool. Okay. Let's say the commonest thing happens. We think it's gout. It's a 50-year-old bloke. We've, we've tapped his knee and we actually get a diagnosis on that. Probably a little bit basic, but it's worth going through the basics. How do you treat it? No, it's definitely worth going through it. For some reason, we, we still get lots of referrals about how to treat acute gout. And you think it's really obvious, but I don't think it always is. So you can use three different things in acute gout. You can use um, NSAIDs. You can use colchicine or you can use steroid. Um, the steroid could either be oral or it could be intraarticular, so into the joint, or it could be IM if you wanted to do that. And the colchicine can be given to nearly everyone. Um, the only reasons that you can't use that is if the EGFR is less than 10. And you also want to use caution with that if there aren't any certain other medications such as clarithromycin or erythromycin, fluoxetine and cyclosporin, you also want to use caution with that if they're on a statin because it can cause a myopathy as well. But when I say caution, you can still use it. You would just want to use it low dose and probably hold the other medication if, the, if you can. It also works just as well at BD as it does at QDS. So I can't remember the last time I prescribed colchicine at QDS it almost always causes diarrhea at that dose. Okay. So typically mm-hmm. I'll prescribe it BD in nearly everyone. But if we have a, a larger customer, um, then I would prescribe it a TDS. And then the anti-inflammatories, I'm a little cautious with elderly people and most gout patients will be on the older side. I was say, it, non-steroidals are brilliant, aren't they? But yeah. you, can never need, you can never use them on half our population. <laughs> And if you're unsure, then you can always use steroid. People vary in how much they give, but I've seen anywhere from 20 to 30 milligrams being used from 
anywhere from five to seven days, and typically that will do the trick. Okay. So, oh, go on, Peter. Yeah, it's just a bit of clarification about the culture scene dosing, because I remember previously I've always been told up by the ward pharmacist for um, patients being on too much culture scene for too long. Uh, because it says you can only have so much in the BNF unless that's changed recently. What, what's your practice? Is Do we need to worry about the cumulative dose of the culture? Yeah, this, yeah, this is um, in the BNF, but I don't prescribe the culture scene according to the BNF really anymore, and I don't think many of my colleagues do. And what I mean by that is I prescribe it at a much lower dose because mm. it's just as effective. The other thing is about length. So... In gout, we usually only need to use it for five to seven days, but culturesine long term is frequently used in other conditions yeah, without so issue. Pericarditis, mm. they use it, yeah. don't they, for three months? Yeah, yeah. pericarditis. Beshe's patients will be on it indefinitely for okay. their mouth ulcers, yeah. um, and it's really useful for that. And they'll be on B- it's like a OD. bonus fact you've thrown in there, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> OD or BD doses for forever, long term. Um, we also use it off license to prevent pseudo gout flares because, unfortunately, although gout, we haven't mentioned chronic gout treatment, but chronic uh, chronic gout has a few treatments that can be used as a preventative, but unfortunately, pseudo gout doesn't. So we also sometimes put people on long term colchicine off license as a preventative for pseudogap. Yeah. So, yeah, we do use it mm. long-term. Are you seeing problems with it? No. We don't see any problems with it at all. Okay. Yeah, the BNF probably needs... Updating. Updating. <laughs> so, I guess the other thing that always is in my head, and I am cheating slightly because I've got it in front of me, but renal function, I always think, oh, you can't use colchicine if they've got renal impairment. No, it's... It, it's just you can't use it if their EGFR is less than 10 and that's but that's rare that's very it? rare yeah if their EGFR is low so 15 yeah then I would be cautious with it yeah so I wouldn't use it at the TDS doses or BD yeah. I would probably stick to OD uh, once daily but you can still use it at that dose and I actually find that even an OD dose of colchicine is very effective um, yeah colchicine is is a really good acute gout treatment. Yeah. But some patients are a bit, well, patients are, don't always follow the uh, the textbooks, do they? <laughs> so some, some patients, NSAIDs works really well for their gout. Some patients, Colchicine works really well for their gout. Some patients, I've given prednisolone for their gout and that hasn't worked and I go back. So patients are really, uh, are really tricky. Yeah. And I suppose if they've had it before, they may be aware of what works for them. Right exactly. Now. Okay, so then chronic treatment. So these patients don't need, like you say before, if they're fairly straightforward and there's no other complication, we'll be sending these patients to the GP, not to the rheumatologist, as a general rule. Yeah. Um, so in terms of chronic management, the GPs know how to do this. This is their bread and butter, but sometimes it's nice for us to be able to be a bit aware of that as well do you start anything or do you advise anything to the gps when you're sending them home so yeah you're right this is really common in primary care gout's extremely common it affects two and a half percent of the uk population so we wouldn't typically start allopurinol as an inpatient and usually that's because you like to wait at least normally you want to wait around four weeks after their acute gout attack before you start the allopurinol that's for a couple of reasons it's so that you're not starting too many drugs at the same time and it's because gout is so painful 
that it's thought that patients just can't take in that information about treating their chronic gout. Okay. So typically, you'll ask your primary care colleagues to start the allopurinol, and that would be if the patient's having more than two attacks of gout in 12 months, or if they have gouty topi, or if they, if the patient themselves particularly wants to try and bring down their your rate and stop themselves from having another gout attack even after one. So some patients will choose to do that. Okay. And there's some evidence that raised your rate, raised your acid in the blood can contribute to other issues. But yeah. this is a bit controversial, so it's not completely clear about all of that. And these are the issues of the, the hypertension and the cardiac disease as well. So I've seen, as well as other purinol, I've seen people on, more and more people, it's getting more common for me to see for Buxostat, which is a drug that I don't feel as familiar with, but I've seen it, I'm seeing it more and more. Is that something that's getting more common to be used or? I don't know. I, it must be. Um, to be honest, I see most people on allopurinol, rarely see for Buxostat being used, but for Buxostat is second line. It's just you have to be cautious with it with um, patients with ischemic heart disease and typically patients with gout <laughs> have ischemic heart disease. So there aren't that many patients that you can use it with. Okay. Typical ones that I see it used with are patients who've had an AKI with the allopurinol or if they've been extremely unfortunate enough to have a significant reaction to the allopurinol, um, Stephen Johnson syndrome or mm. something okay. awful like that. Yeah, okay. Can I ask about titrating either allopurinol or even for bugs that have no idea how to titrate really, uh, but allopurinol, I know you, you titrate um, to try and achieve a certain level of uric acid. How often do you check uric acid and how often do you titrate the drug? Usually you would start at 100 milligrams if their renal function is fine, so... And then you would check their kidney function and LFTs and your rate after about four to six weeks and okay. if their your rate remains above 300 then you would increase the allopurinol again so you go up in increments of 100 usually if the patient's got ckd four or five typically then you would normally start at 50 milligrams and right. titrate up in 50 milligram increments rather than 100 in the past we used to not use allopurinol if a patient's EGFR was less than 30, but the more recent studies have actually shown that this is safe, but that would start at lower and titrate it up. Slower and lower. Okay. okay. Good to know. Start low and go slow. Yeah. yeah. So, you've sort of talked a little bit about the, the treatment for that in terms of the using the culture scene but in the first instance is that just supportive treatment and no in the for acute pseudogout it's treated exactly the same as acute gout mm -hmm. so you can use steroid you can use NSAID or you can use culture scene okay so you just treat it in the same way pretty yeah much. okay but so, it's allopurinol that doesn't, it's the longer term management that don't work as well unfortunately allopurinol doesn't work for recurrent pseudogout not many people get recurrent pseudogout, yeah. um, but the people that do can be quite tricky and they definitely need to be referred to rheumatology because we have to use off-license medications. Okay. Probably one of the last points I'll touch on, so when you've got um, a joint fusion, I was always taught that if you've got a joint fusion, that's not OA. 
it's not osteoarthritis. It must be either gout or rheumatoid or septic, but it's definitely not OA. And then I was reading something recently, which it actually can be. Is that right? Yeah, it, it can be, yeah. So often rheumatologists will talk about cold effusions. And by that, we mean a swollen joint, but that it's not erythematous and it's not hot. It's normal skin temperature. Um, and that is very frequently caused by osteoarthritis or meniscal tears or any mm. other mechanical problem inside the knee. But you wouldn't usually get that from gout unless mm. it was almost fully resolved and yeah. that was the end of it. But yes, unfortunately, um, osteoarthritis does cause knee effusions. And so it's not easy. With those cold effusions, is it still worth getting the fluid off and putting steroid in, do you think? or? Well... We would in yeah. our injection clinics, but it doesn't count as the hot swollen mm-hmm. joint that it's you, not hot. Because it's, <laughs> yeah, because it's not hot, essentially. Yeah. So the patient often is very symptomatic with this, yeah. and aspirating that fluid and injecting it with steroid will almost certainly help them. But yes, it doesn't need to be aspirated. And there is evidence that recurrent steroid injections in osteoarthritis can progress osteoarthritis. So. Right. Need to be careful. Yeah, you would be careful, and I, I wouldn't recommend it being done repeatedly to patients, um, especially in AMU. Okay, okay. So I've got one other last question, which is really cheeky, but it's just occurred to me. So the other thing is, I remember being a reg and being taught by a consultant that if you stick a needle in a hot swollen knee and it isn't pus-like and turbulent when you get it out, just stick the steroid in while you're there. What do you think about that? <laughs> oh. So sometimes, sometimes I will do that yeah. if I don't think it's a septic joint. But you, your acumen on this thing is going to be a lot better than uh, most of us, isn't it? <laughs> but I've seen probably a few more swollen joints than other people. Yeah. So I do make that choice sometimes, especially if the patient is a known inflammatory arthritis yeah. patient, for example, who do also present with hot swollen joints. Yeah. But I probably wouldn't recommend that in the normal situation in AMU, if a patient has been referred from their GP with a big hot swollen joint, yeah. um, I think it would be safer to wait for that aspirate to come back first. Any other questions, Peter? I, I want to just add on a follow-up question with that with regards to interarticular steroid injections and what steroid and what dose. I've heard different things, and I, I, I know what I use, but I want to make sure I'm using the right stuff. Oh, I hope everyone uses this before I start saying it. Myself and my colleagues, we all use 80 milligrams of depamedarone. That's for a knee injection. For a knee injection, okay. yeah. And smaller joints? Smaller joints will vary between 10 for a PIP okay. or MCP to 20 maybe for a wrist, up to, you can get up to 40 in a elbow and you would put 40 in a shoulder as well. Okay. Just looking at Peter's face, trying to work out if that's what he's been doing. <laughs> the knee, I'll, I admit, I don't think I've ever injected that other than the knee, so yeah. <laughs> okay, so shall we go on to our second half of our podcast? So yeah. Peter, do you want to talk about your case? Okay, then? so um, I'm going to make up uh, a 72-year-old lady who's been referred by her GP to the acute medical unit with a right-sided headache. And the GP has actually questioned the potential diagnosis of giant cell arthritis. Um, I'm going to just open this up and just ask you, what what is giant cell arthritis and why should we be worried about it? Oh, so giant cell arthritis is a 
common uh, large vessel vasculitis, which causes headache, which can be the unilateral or bilateral. It's usually temporal, but not always. You may get visual disturbance, which can present as loss or rarely double vision. And you can also get reduced temporal pulses. You can get other features such as cranial nerve palsies or aneurysms as well. Right, okay. It's a a type of large vessel vasculitis that's um, similar to polymyalgia rheumatica. Okay. Um, I suppose I never really think of giant cell arteritis as being vasculitis. Um, And with vasculitis, I tend to send off a vasculitis screen. I assume I shouldn't be doing this for this. What should I be doing? Well, yeah, the anchor will be negative Mm. if you were to send it off. Um, But if there were other features such as rash or an AKI or other systemic features, then sending off an anchor would be very sensible um, because you can get very, very occasionally other systemic features with um, large vessel vasculitis. Did you say what, what should you do? What, what, what should I do? What investigations? How should I work these people up? Yeah, so simple bloods such as a full blood count, um, CRP, ESR are really useful, and the other bloods, UNEs, LFTs. You'll often find that the CRP and the ESR are raised quite significantly, and that might be from their normal baseline. You'll often find that their platelets are high as well. You occasionally might find an anemia. And once you've got that and you're suspicious of giant cell arteritis, then you should either send that patient for an ultrasound um, temporal arteries or biopsy, or your pathway might be to refer to rheumatology who then decide on either of those two investigations. Right, okay. It's, I just find this a really difficult diagnosis because it's one of those ones where you feel like it's missed. There's always, you know, I used to do the mortality and morbidity and there would tend to be sort of a delayed treatment or something each year of a case of this because it's difficult if you don't think about it. Um, and like anything, it's always obvious in hindsight. But then when you do think about it, you spend a lot of time ooing and ahhing over it because mm. there's a lot of grey isn't there and it's a bit like your cell count you know it's never an ESR yeah. of 120 it's always about 30 or 40 yeah. <laughs> in an elderly patient and you're not quite sure mm. so I suppose is there any top tips for it? it's it's the grey ones I think I find really difficult so somebody's mentioned it and you think oh it could be but it's all a bit soft are we better always just erring on the side of caution that's what it sort of feels like or it's hard to answer that, isn't it? Because you don't want to practice medicine defensively. defensively. Yeah, totally. But the risk here is that untreated, up to 60% of people will go blind. Yeah. So it's got quite a serious risk associated with it. If they've got any visual symptoms, you definitely want to be getting that patient to yeah. see an ophthalmologist. Yeah. And they'll, look, they'll look for signs of AION. Yeah. Um, and what does that stand for again? Is that the anterior ischemic optic neuropathy? Neuritis. Neuritis, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually impressed myself and that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> That's quite right. Well done. <laughs> so they'll look for that. And if, if they find that, then that's a big kind of Suggestive. warning sign okay. for GCA. Yeah. 
But that doesn't always feature because nothing's nothing's by the textbook, is it? Um, I think the ones in the middle are really tricky. And obviously the safest thing to do is if there's clinical suspicion, you can discuss with a senior on your yeah. unit who might have more experience of dealing with this. Or you can follow your local pathway and refer to rheumatology for them to make the decision. Because I think unless you see and manage a lot of these patients, it can be really tricky yeah. to, to work out, is this patient low risk for GCA, medium risk or high risk for GCA? Yeah. And that that's what we do when we take a history and um, look at the results for these patients. We work out in our heads, is this low, medium or high? And we go from there, essentially. Yeah. So the lower are easy, aren't they, really? Because They're really easy. That you're just yeah. you're discharging those, and you've nearly always got a, an obvious diagnosis, and the high are pretty easy because you just plug them into the pathway and you start your steroids. Exactly. It is those medium it's ones. It's the medium ones. And I've and seen juniors spending hours trying to find a temporal pulse as if that will give them the golden answer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's these medium ones. So say they're already on steroids. So for PMR, say their inflammatory marker is going to be normal. Yeah, of course, mm. yeah. Then those are the ones that you have to be, be really aware of because you won't get that rise in inflammatory marker, but they do have a risk of GCA because they've yeah. already got PMR. Yeah. So it's being aware of these ones really and we might we would send them for an ultrasound and in Liverpool and if that shows it then great we know the answer and if they're still in this medium risk category and that could be for any reason then if we're still not sure and the ultrasound's negative or we then we might send them for a biopsy after that but it is really really tricky the safest thing to do is if you're not sure speak to a senior or refer to a rheumatologist who mm. is an expert in managing and diagnosing these patients yeah for the, for the patient who isn't already on steroids how, how reliant should we be or can we be on the esr because i feel like more and more i am somewhat sometimes reliant on that i may sway my i think that's quite tricky because typically the esr and the crp will be significantly raised from baseline so by that, I mean if they're normally SR and CRP runs at 50 and this ESR and CRP are 55, then that mm. doesn't count mm. as a rise. Yeah, sure. But if they normally have a normal ESR and CRP and now, it's above, and now both are above 40, then that would definitely make me think mm. this is, might be GCA, especially if they give a, a good history for it as well. Yeah. So some people will use a cutoff of around 30 to 40 and um, depending on which rheumatologist you speak to. Okay. Okay. Um, in Liverpool, our entry guideline uses 40 as their cut-off. Mm. The, the other cut-off I just wanted to ask you is age. Because I, uh, when reading about it, a lot of the documents say 50, I, I think, is the age. But yeah. it, how common is it in 50-year-olds? It's yeah. quite rare in 50-year-olds. Okay. Usually the patient will be above 60. Sure. But we do get... The old patient who's mm. 51, you know, 52. Okay. And I certainly wouldn't be completely put off if they were 49, for example, because yeah. obviously the yeah. GCA doesn't know how old the patient is. 
but I definitely <laughs> I definitely wouldn't consider it in a 30-year-old, for yeah. example. So my, one of my moments of glory, well, not really glory, but uh, we did a week of senior triage um, in our AMU when we were just seeing how effective it would be having a consultant at the front door. And the idea was, that, you know, to start antibiotics early or that sort of thing, pick up stuff early. And I got a 38-year-old referred um, with query giant cell arteritis. But if you ask the patient why I was there, it was because he couldn't get an appointment to the dentist. And he had a huge tooth abscess. And it was one of the most easiest <laughs> patients to treat. It was a wonderful turnaround. Seen, treated, discharged within five minutes. It was brilliant. <laughs> so I felt fairly confident on that. But when we're seeing these patients, it'd be really unusual, wouldn't it, for sort of ESR, CRP to be below five, normal ESR, and platelets normal to be a GCA unless they're on steroids. Abs- absolutely. A good take-home point to just think about that because, of course, PMR is one of the linked conditions, isn't it? So it's, that would make it more likely. Yeah, you did allude to PMR being uh, linked with GCA. How common is PMR with patients with GCA? And I suppose you could ask the vice versa. There's about up to 20% overlap mm. is what the literature tells okay. us. If you speak to the GCA patients... Although they might concentrate on their headache, or that might be what brought them in, often they will describe PMR symptoms with shoulder stiffness and Um, pelvic stiffness as well. And I guess a lot of them just put that down to being old, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. They just say, oh, it's just a bit of aches and pains of old age, and then you go into it, and actually it's the aches and pains of getting out of a chair. or Absolutely, and vice versa. I've picked up several now that have been referred to me with good PMR symptoms where that's what the patient's complained of. When I've questioned whether they've had a headache, they've said yes. And when I've sent them for a Doppler, that's showed a halo sign okay. to that actually GCA. It's just their predominant yeah. clinical symptoms of PMR. So whenever you diagnose someone with PMR, it is really important to ask if they've got a headache or any visual symptoms. Okay, yeah. Because you often will find that they say yes. Right, yeah. okay, okay. Um, one of the questions I, I did want to ask before we go into treatments of uh, GCA and PMR is um, the well, two questions really. First question is diagnosis of uh, GCA and differences between um, a temporal artery ultrasound and a temporal artery biopsy. Because uh, I know we've moved more away from biopsies and towards ultrasounds. Can you just expand on that? Why, why, why is that is the case? What's the difference? In Liverpool, we've we do a lot of ultrasounds and much less biopsies. And that's for a couple of reasons, really. So the temporal artery biopsy is obviously the gold standard. And if you have a positive biopsy, then that's that's 100% this patient has this condition. Sure. But there's about a 45% false negative rate. So about 45% of patients who have GCA will have a negative biopsy. And we always knew that there were these skip lesions on the biopsy. So you could never really trust it if it was negative. You had to then go back to clinical. clinical. Yeah. So I think this person's high risk, low risk or medium risk. The ultrasound is brilliant because it's um, really easy for us to get it. Um, it's operator dependent, obviously. So you have to make sure that the people doing it are good. But in Liverpool, we're really lucky. We have an excellent radiography team. Who... I guess they have to be doing enough as well, don't they? So if you've got a tiny ultrasound department in yeah. a small DGH, they're not just going to get... It's all about how many you're seeing, isn't it? Like anything. Yeah, and 
all of ours go to the Royal, the ones that I see at Aintree go to the Royal, the ones I see at Broad Green and the Royal go to the Royal. So they do them all, so they get really good and yeah. have done over the past couple of years. But again, the literature says that about 80% of those will be reported incorrectly, you know, so they could be reported as not having GCI and they've got it, or vice versa. So even if the ultrasound says one thing or another, it still doesn't take away your clinical acronym. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. That's life, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that's why robots can never do our job. <laughs> and that's why we send patients, you know, I mentioned before that we'll send patients for an ultrasound and if that doesn't say what I thought it would say, then I'll still send Don't them for a biopsy yeah. afterwards, mm-hmm. trying to eventually get what I want it to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, thank you. Um, and the other question I had with regards to giant cell arthritis is that I know um, it's associated with aneurysms. Um, do these patients uh, typically get screened for aortic aneurysms? So the, the BSR guidelines are a bit dated now. I think they're being redone. Um, so they're about 10 years old. The way that they screen for aneurysms is through a chest x-ray, um, which is what they <laughs> recommend <laughs> in the BSR guidelines. So obviously... That's a bit of a controversial question because the patients do get aneurysms, but we don't send them for a CT scan. Sure. But we do do a chest X-ray. But obviously, I've never had one of those come back mm-hmm. as abnormal. Yeah. It's a really good question, and it's a bit of a controversial area because these large vessel vasculitis, PMR and GCA, people are on a spectrum, aren't they, where there's people with mild disease and there's people with really severe disease. And how do you know where the cutoff is, where these people need a CT to look for aneurysms and these other people don't? Hmm. And it's so rare for the patient to present with any other issues such as strokes or aneurysms in any way that I don't know if you get, well, you would get enough positive results to hmm. make it worthwhile. Sure. Okay. Not sure. That needs a cleverer person than me to work out. <laughs> it probably needs more data, doesn't it, generally, yeah. just to yeah. see what the frequency is. Okay. Should we move on to treatment then? Um, going into treatments of giant cell arthritis, um, how should we treat them? Uh, yeah, so if they've got visual symptoms or jaw claudication, which, by the way, isn't just pain in the jaw just when they're at rest it's pain in the jaw when moving like when eating people very frequently get confused with that if they've got either of those two things they're counted as high risk symptoms and they should go into 60 milligrams of prednisolone if they haven't and they've got the headache without any visual symptoms or jaw claudication then they go on 40 milligrams of prednisolone the high dose steroid is continued for a month and then it's lowered there's bsr guidelines which advise on how to do that Essentially, it's reduced every, by usually five milligrams every two weeks. The only other thing is that if a patient has evolving visual loss, so if they've presented and they've been having visual loss, mm. which is a bit of a warning sign before they were to go on to develop visual loss, and then you want to give those IV methylprednisolone. The guidelines say between 500 milligrams and one gram. I'm not sure there's any evidence to say which dose you should go for, um, but you definitely want to do that yeah. if they're having visual loss. Okay, okay. 
And is there any evidence to say that these patients should also be on aspirin? I remember once upon a time we, we yeah, gave yeah. them aspirin and then no one ever talks about that. Yeah. What happened to the aspirin? Is it still there? It's, still, still, there. <laughs> it's still there, along with other obvious stuff, PPI, mm. yeah. calcium, abysphosphonate, if their FRAC score is, um, indicates that they need it. Because they're going to be on steroids for a long time, mm. these patients, aren't they? Yeah, and FRAX has just been updated where it has an uh, indication of if they're on a certain amount of steroid that they should be on treatment. So that's really useful to work out. Okay. Most of these people will should mm. be on bisphosphonate. Mm-hmm. The aspirin is still included, okay. again, for their risk of yeah. aneurysms and other sure. ischemic heart disease and strokes. And is that how long is that for, the aspirin? Is that the same time as the steroid? Or? Yeah, these medications... I bet they never come off the aspirin, do they, when, mm. it, when it's on the... Yeah. Well, probably, because I think if you worked out their Q risk yeah. at the end of this, they'd probably indicate that yeah. they still need it. Because most of these patients are 60 or 70 yeah. and often yeah. have other medical yeah. problems. And the bisphosphonates, what I learned a while ago now, but still a bit too late, I think, in my career, was the, the teeth thing. So yeah. if patients on bisphosphonate, dentists are very reluctant to take their teeth out if they're rotten. So normally they get advised to go to see the dentist and have any dental work done before starting the bisphosphonate. Is that, am I still right in that? Yeah. So osteonecrosis of the jaw is the big risk with um, bisphosphonates, which is a horrible condition, but extremely rare. So Mm -hmm. literature is about one in 4,000 people. Yeah will get that. It is awful. So you recommend that they get any dental work that they need doing before they go on to this medication. It can still happen to people who don't need dental work. Mm -hmm. But you do have to weigh up the risk of a fracture as well. Which is also pretty horrible. (laughs) Yeah. And much more common. Exactly. So when you plug all their numbers into fracs, then it might say that this person has got nine percent risk of a hip fracture over the next 10 years and a you know 20 percent risk of any osteoporotic fracture and you have to weigh up that they've got a one in five or one in ten chance of a significant fracture versus one in four thousand risk of osteoporosis of the jaw obviously you know we all know that 50 percent of people who have a hip fracture will be in a nursing home or will need assisted living Mm. um a year after their injury yeah so you do have to weigh that up. I think the best thing is to give all this information to the patient and let them mm-hmm. decide. Um, I, I was just thinking about where our role as acute physicians come in, comes into this, because obviously we're going to be starting with steroids. We're going to be referring to rheumatology. In terms of the bisphosphonate, is it it's worth doing that FRAC score so everything's in process? Is that something that you would expect us to start or would that be done in the rheumatology clinic or does it just vary? I personally probably wouldn't expect you to start this because I think this is a conversation that needs a bit of time and I think that's a bit easier done when the patient already has their diagnosis and knows what they're doing with the steroids and definitely definitely doesn't need to be done at the beginning anyway because it will take some weeks for that bisphosphonate to get into the system. So I don't think that you have to do that in AMU and I wouldn't expect you to do it. I'd expect me to do it in yeah. clinic. I'm yeah. so glad you said that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> There's a big gap in my medical knowledge. But, but I guess the other thing is as well, it's like how for the patient, looking from their point of view, it's a big diagnosis. 
taking steroids is something that people don't like. Mm. They've mm. heard about steroids. They've heard about weight gain and, you know, they, they, they just don't like it. So to take all that on board and then you're starting to talk about this funny thing that can happen in your jaw and everything else, yeah. it's too much, isn't it? Mm. I think I think we sometimes underestimate how much a diagnosis is to a patient. Yeah. Um, and these, these are relatively big diagnoses. Yeah, so... I, if I diagnose someone, I often won't have that conversation at that point and will delay that conversation slightly, you know, for a couple of mm-hmm. weeks later when I see yeah. them again. Yeah. Um, just because I think it's so much to take on board and I think asking them to make a decision about their osteoporosis management yeah. is quite a lot to expect for some, yeah. from someone, isn't it? So it's good for us to know about, but we don't have to do it. No, tick. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I think just because we've mentioned it, we'll just touch on the treatment of uh, PMR and how it differs from GCA, um, although we probably don't see that all that much in the medical unit. But uh, is there a difference between treatments? Bit of a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so PMR is a much lower dose of steroid. Um, so again, there's BSR guidelines for this, but recommend about 15 milligrams of prednisolone. Again, that's given over a month and titrated down mm. after that. So it's much lower than the 40 or 60 that you're using in GCA. Patients will typically tell you that they feel amazing or that they'll give 80% improvement after after about a week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes people are unsure if the diagnosis is PMR or not, and often in primary care or, or in rheumatology clinic, I might give someone a trial of the steroid if I think this mm-hmm. is the most likely diagnosis mm-hmm. and then review them again. So that's the kind of improvement that you'd expect in the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is it slightly um, thinking of a patient that I'm aware of, but if they feel really well after sort of a week or so, they normally want to come off the steroid pretty quickly. Well, the, the patients come in two types, the, the patients that hate taking tablets and want to get off them as soon as possible, or those that are frightened to go back to how they felt before is it really important to emphasise that it's slow or can you go a bit quicker with coming off PMR tablets? Or So it usually takes about 18 months to come off the steroids yeah. because once you get down to 10 milligrams, we reduce by one milligram every four to six weeks typically. Yeah, yeah it takes 10 months just to come down from 10 milligrams. And if you do it too quickly, is there a risk of relapse then? Yeah. Some patients will make the decision to go to come off it quickly yeah. and some of them might be really lucky and not have it yeah. relapse but a lot of people will relapse yeah. mm-hmm. and what you don't want is to end up back at square one when yeah. you then take another 18 months to yeah. reduce yeah so i would advise them to follow the guidelines but you know patients can also make their own decisions and if they choose to come off as long as they don't have any features of gca then it's not a particularly dangerous condition yeah. Equally, very occasionally you get the patient who declines the steroids. And in that situation, eventually the PMR will usually burn out, but that will often take years and years and years to do. Okay. I think the average for the natural history of untreated PMR is about seven or eight years. Okay. So that's a okay. long time to be feeling rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. And are these things, is there any sort of family history? I'm just thinking of patients that come in with GCA. Is there any sort of family history link with either relatives who've had PMR or... There's not known to be a link within families, but it's much more common in Caucasian patients. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Yes. I suppose one of the differentials for PMR, uh, whenever I may have seen it, is, is malignancy, cancer, due to the vagueness of it. Yeah. Do you have any tips on how to differentiate? That's really tricky. So first of all, when you're diagnosing PMR, because it can masquerade as lots of different things, mm. it's really sensible to do a couple of extra blood tests, creatinine kinase, a thyroid, a protein, electrophoresis. The guidelines recommend the chest x-ray again. The way that we would think of alternative diagnoses is if there's red flags, so night pain, you know, waking up at night time, if there's neurology, if there's significant weight loss, if they have completely normal inflammatory markers, if they haven't responded to the steroids at all, if they only have a tiny response to the steroids. So if they're not responding as you would expect, then you definitely should think of alternative diagnoses. Okay, uh, that's, that's good to know. There's a lot of um, things in that I didn't know about, mm, actually. So yeah. maybe that's going to change my practice. <laughs> um, do you have any other questions, Vicky? No, I was going to wrap up there, I think. I mean, for me, there's so much there. There's loads. It's one of those there's ones so I'm looking else. forward to mm. listening back to again and sort of reflecting on it. I think I've reflected on the fact pseudo gout. I don't think I see it very often. I think I probably miss it sometimes, and I certainly didn't. It's been a really good pearl there just to treat it like gout if if we find it because I don't think I knew that. Yeah. If I did, it was buried. Yeah. What What's your? Um, I, I think it goes back to that red hot joint there and the that grey area sticking yeah. with my clinical gut feeling. And if I'm unsure, yeah. play it safe and wait for the culture to come back. Yeah. I think that'll be my take. Okay. All right, lovely. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. That was amazing. I've really enjoyed it. That was fantastic. Okay. Thank you for inviting me. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Society of Acute Medicine podcast. We hope this episode has been interesting and helpful for you all. Please do go to the SAM website, www.acutemedicine.org.uk for all things acute medicine, including show notes from today's episode under the education menu. You'll also find more info about acute medicine, the team, and how to contact us individually. Please do get in touch with us via Twitter using @acutemedpod. Let us know what you thought, as well as topics you'd like us to explore in future episodes, or if you would love to get involved. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us next time.